This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading can be found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 59. It can be found on page 618 of the Black Bibles in your pews. Isaiah chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. And deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. And they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. They who have made their roads crooked, no one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. And for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives, 
and a redeemer will come to Zion and those in Jacob who turn from transgression or to those in Jacob who return or to turn from transgression declares the Lord and as for me this is my covenant with them says the Lord my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of your mouth out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to see you all. If I haven't uh, met you, I have to meet you again because I shaved my beard, right? I'm still Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. Looking at your faces, it it, it reminded me. Um, So, yeah, if I haven't met you, I'd love to, and you're welcome. I'm glad you're here. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20 says, And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So if we only remember one thing about the sermon today, I want us to remember that. I want with all my heart for you to remember that this chapter is about Jesus Christ. Christ is the redeemer. Christ is the cleanser of iniquity. Christ is the purchaser of our freedom. Christ is the purpose and the pathway that this chapter ends with. Most of the verses in this chapter are pretty rough, in my opinion. That's a technical term. They're pretty rough. They left me feeling pretty uh, low and even hopeless at times. There's sin after sin after sin, detailed descriptions of iniquity and vile wickedness. It was almost too much for me as I read and soaked in this chapter of the Bible this week, and I found myself pretty low and pretty discouraged. I found myself asking questions like, where's the justice? Where's the righteousness? Where's the way of peace? Where are straight roads instead of crooked roads? Where's the truth Where's God's truth, God's word, God's spirit? I was pretty overwhelmed and even at times like kind of gloomy as I read the words of the prophet Isaiah. And yet the Lord, the Lord did meet me there in that spot. Uh, this chapter has glorious purpose and hope for people like us. So, uh, so let me pray and then, uh, and then we'll dig in this morning. So, Heavenly Father, In a time when truth is wobbly in the streets, would you come with your word and strengthen us? Would you come and give us um, straightness? Would you come and give us stability? Your word is never wobbly. It's never unreliable. Your truth is we can count on, we can lean on. So strengthen hearts and souls this morning with the living word of God, I ask Holy Spirit, be with us. Direct us, change us, transform us, comfort us and convict us, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the the structure of today's text is... um, 
is threefold. We're going to see, we're going to see God give an accusation to his people. Then we're going to see God give a description of what that accusation entails. And then we're going to see the people respond in the correct way, respond with confession, right? And then finally, we'll have God conclude with his action toward them in love. What we see in these verses is, is what sin has done and what God plans to do about it. Isaiah 59 crests a kind of threshold in the book of Isaiah into the next few chapters of the book where we'll get to see some glorious chapters about the future that God promises for everyone who believes, everyone who turns from transgression. There is a bright and beautiful future guaranteed for all of us, but this chapter is a description of the hearts and actions of the people that were either alluded to or spoken of from chapter 58. This chapter explains the state of a sinful heart. That's what we get to see here. It's the state of even sinful society. And we begin with an accusation from God towards his people. Read with me verses 1 to 3. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, that he does not hear, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. This is a tragic reality, and it's a tragic reality for each of our lives. For the first and obvious kind of tragic reality here is that the issue seems to stem with us, right? We're the problem. I'm the problem in my marriage. I'm the problem in parenting my children. I'm the problem in connecting opportunities to share the gospel with other people. I'm the issue. I have real guilt and I have real sin. And in this instant, I want us to notice one of the consequences of sin, the sin of these people, is it hides God's face from us. The verse is clear. God isn't weak and God isn't far away. God's action to save is there and it's powerful, but the iniquity of these people has caused a chasm to form. A gulf stands between the Lord and his people and it's because of their sin. This verse essentially says, behold, behold, there's nothing wrong with God right? There's nothing wrong with God. He's not the issue. It's us. It's his people. In Jeremiah 27, 5, the arm of the Lord is described. And listen to this description when God says, it is I who, who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the heavens and the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. God's arm is strong enough and powerful enough to make the earth and every single living creature in it. But our sin hides his face from us. And that's tragic. You see, there's nothing wrong with God's reach and God's not hard of hearing, but we lose sight of him like a fog that overtakes taillights on a highway. We lose sight of him. We lose closeness. We lose connection to him because of our sins. His face becomes hidden behind the cloudiness of our sinfulness. He's not far away. He's not far off. He's here. He's ready with salvation for us as we see the futility of that sin and turn back to him. God seems distant. 
He seems deaf to our cry all too often in our lives. The psalmists are, or the psalms are replete with examples of God's people begging God to hear them, begging God to comfort them, begging God to take away anguish, to take away distress, to take away pain. And they wait and ask for God's nearness to be realized and to be experienced. And we can see here today that sometimes the distance that we experience with God is a distancing of our own desires because sin is always unbelief. Sin is always disordered desire. Sin is always when we want God's stuff, but not God himself. We don't want to obey. We don't want to believe him. We don't want to change. You see, we can't be indulging in the impulses of our flesh and indulging and basking in the grace of God at the same time. We can't be obedient to the impulses of our flesh and obedient to God at the same time. We can't be wholeheartedly aimed at the Lord and be unrepentant at the same time. If our desire is for God, then our sin is actually competing for our attention, right? Our sin is in competition with the living God, and the proper thing to do with it is to confess and give up and turn back again to God. Verse 3 says, Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. The structure of these lines is meant to draw emphasis to the sinfulness of sin. Your hands and your fingers is to say that you're all in on this defiling behavior. It isn't tentative, it's flagrant. And the repetition of lips and tongue is to emphasize all kinds of false and deceptive and lying speech. It's to emphasize false speech and whispering and muttering evil things, muttering under their breath wicked and unloving designs and statements. These people are defiled in their hearts and their mouths demonstrate it. God's accused them. God's lobbied an accusation at them and now he moves and he turns to describe their transgressions to them. The description that God gives them is, um, is a strong, strong indictment. God's telling his people that their sin has created an obstacle to, content, to connection and communion with him. And then the chapter changes from second person pronouns to third person pronouns as it goes from you all are doing this to this is what they are doing. God goes into great detail describing their sin. In verses four through eight, he gives a scathing description of what they are doing. Reading verse 4, it says, No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief. They give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave a spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. We see a list, a list here of iniquity. 
We see empty pleas, spoken lies, plans for mischief, daydreams, right? These people are daydreaming about violence, daydreams about iniquity. These people are twisting the courts to their own gain. They're dreaming up plans and strategies for how to commit sin and evil. They're hatching plans that will have poisonous results. The tangled webs that they're weaving the metaphor of making plans, of weaving a web, are plans to order and commit violent deeds against each other. These people are busy and industrious. It isn't that they're lazy or sluggish. You see here that they're running. They're swift. They're employing both physical energy and mental energy in order to achieve their goals. They have a plan. They're not aimless. They're not thoughtless. They're not deterred. Verses 7 and 8 say, their feet run to evil and they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Friends, these folks have a path. Right? They have a path. They have an idea of what they want to make happen. They have an aim and they have gusto to put themselves into action quickly in order to achieve their plan. They run to evil and they're swift to shed innocent blood. The description here is proactive. The thoughts here are careful thinking and planning and executing a real strategy. These folks are energized to think up evil plans and to accomplish evil goals in a pathway that leads to and results in desolation and destruction. We've seen the metaphor of a highway throughout the book of Isaiah, right? That language should be familiar to us. We see it used over and over and over again throughout the book of Isaiah. And here it is again. But throughout the rest of the book, the the highway that's mentioned is a highway that God makes. A highway that God makes that is contrasted with our highway. God's highway that he makes is one of peace and salvation in the face of imminent doom. But not here. Not here. God's highway is contrasted with ours. Here we have a highway that represents a way of living that results in more evil deeds, more destruction, more desolation. This highway is quite literally a dead end, right? It leads only to death. Without justice and righteousness, no roads lead to peace. These folks have no peace. And the text turns again at this moment. It shifts from the third person into the first. And despite some of the references to darkness and gloom that are going to be in the next few verses, this is actually when a glimmer of sunlight begins to appear in this text. Because the hope found in the Christian life, the hope found in the Christian life is always wedded to the doom and gloom of our hopeless condition outside of the grace of God. So as we get sicker and sicker and more upset with our sin, the light of God's grace begins to glow brighter and brighter and brighter. And we see in verses 9 to 13 that the accusation's been true right? God's not off in his assessment. The description has been accurate, and now there's nothing left to do but confess. See, confession, as you can see here clearly, is nothing more, is nothing more than us agreeing with what God already sees, 
with what God already says about us. God's already said, this is what you're doing, and this is what it looks like. And this is what the consequences of your actions produce. And we have the people move in a posture of agreement with God to say, you're right. You're right, that is what we've done. Confession is agreement with God and what he already knows. So why are we so scared to admit it? Why are we so afraid to tell God what he already knows about us? And the exhortation here is just to remind us that God knows, right? God knows in deeper ways than we do, in fuller ways than we do, in the corners of our hearts and lives that we have no idea about. God already knows. He knows the secrets that you'd never tell anyone. He knows the chains that hold you down with guilt and shame. He knows the hidden habits of your heart. And he's made a way for you to be free from those things. And it starts with just agreeing with him and admitting that you can't do anything to save yourself. You can't do anything to cleanse yourself or make yourself new, but he can. In verses 9 and 10 say, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Isaiah's finding solidarity with his people here. As he says, us and we. As he says, because of our sin, justice is far away. And because of our sin, righteousness is nowhere to be found. Because of our sin, even though we want light, we see darkness. Because of our sin, even though we long for a glimmer of hope, all we see is a gloomy forecast. The people are confessing. They're recognizing their situation. They see, they see that they've sinned. And because of their sin, verses 9 to 13 represent a more accurate picture of their essential reality. Of what's really going on. You see, having physical light is important, but moral and spiritual light is much more important. Walking in physical brightness is helpful if you want to make your way down a path, but moral and spiritual brightness is necessary for the path of justice and righteousness. You see, physical eyesight is an unbelievable blessing for navigating the world, but spiritual eyesight is what's truly valuable. Vitality and physical life is something that we all cherish and we try to protect with everything that we have. But our spiritual life and health and vitality, that's what really keeps us from behaving like dead people. Sin makes us a shadow of what we were made to be. Sin obscures God and obscures us to ourselves. It suppresses the truth and leaves us groping along a wall with no one to guide us. Even though the sun is high, sin leaves us behaving irrationally, unguided, and in the dark. Even more, these verses are almost an exact opposite of verses 10 and 11 from Isaiah 58. If you turn a page to the left in your Bible for Isaiah 58, verse 10 and 11, it says, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, Then shall your light rise in the darkness, 
and your gloom be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually. Chapter 58 tells us that if we do justice and righteousness, then gloomy things are made bright. And instead of being blind and groping for the wall, the Lord himself will guide us continually. But here, people are recognizing their sorry state. They're recognizing even the futility and ongoing, agonizing kind of frustration that sin brings. In Romans 8.22, the Apostle Paul says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And here in Isaiah we read, we all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it seems far away from us. As believers, we agonize. We agonize over the broad consequences of sin, and we agonize over injustice and violence in the world, and we agonize over the consequences of our own sinful decisions. We groan and we moan because we hope for justice, but we don't see it. We hope for salvation, but we plod forward in this world that's broken and filled with sin. We plod forward amidst the crooked pathways of our own hearts and minds. And if we try to identify with Isaiah's audience for just a minute, they're lamenting their own heart condition and the real and natural consequences of choosing to run away from the living God and do things their own way. And at this point in the text, they seem to have really given up their defenses. They seem to give up on making excuses for themselves. Read verses 12 and 13. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgression and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. This section brings to mind a kind of courtroom scene whereby God's the judge and the evidence is overwhelmingly plain against these people. The truth is is that our sins are obvious and they testify against us. This scene is hopeless. These, These people rattle off the case against themselves when they say multiplied transgression, iniquities, denying the Lord, not following God, speaking oppression, revolting against God, conceiving lies, speaking lies, having lies deep inside our hearts. And this list shouldn't shock us, right? Many places in the New Testament, we see that apart from Jesus, this is who we are and this is how we behave. We're all guilty of every sin here and worse. Jesus came to prove that to us. He says if we lust in our heart, we commit adultery in our hearts. If we hate our brothers, we commit murder in our hearts. The New Testament tells us that once we were in darkness, but now we are light. Sin shouldn't surprise us, but it should make God's grace more intense, more beautiful, and more brilliant. And help us be humble and receive it together.
No one's exempt. We're all in this mess together. We're all this people. And we need God. We need the God of Isaiah chapter 59 uh, verses 14 to 21 to break in like a warrior and save us. We need him to break in in strength and come in between the future that we would make for ourselves through our sin and the future that he has for us that will be in the chapters that follow. So what does God do now? Now that at least some of the people have confessed, and with this confession comes repentance from the remnant of these people who, are, who want to follow God and turn from their transgression. How does he act? Well, first we get a kind of recap or summary of where we are, of where we are so far. We read a recap of a statement about things as they are. When God says in verses 14 and 15 that justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. That truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Justice and righteousness are far away and truth is nowhere to be found. Truth can't even stand up straight. And while the people have sinned and created an environment that's far from justice and inhospitable to the truth, God's not far away. God's not aloof. He isn't blind and he sees everything. He sees everything. This is the moment in the text that God takes action on behalf of his people. This is the moment in the text that God initiates on behalf of his people. He acts in order to save his people from the bleak picture that we've read about thus far. He acts to bring judgment to his enemies and he acts to bring a redeemer and renew the covenant that he has with his chosen people. Starting with the second half of verse 15, it says, The Lord saw it. It displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered what there was and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And commentaries agree that this is much less about clothing and much more about the character and nature of God. In this picture, God looks down and sees that there isn't any justice. He looks down and he acts on behalf of his repentant people. He looks down and sees that the people cannot uphold themselves. And God gets ready to get into the fight. He gets dressed to act and fight for his people. Things like God's salvation, God's righteousness, God's divine zeal are qualities that God displays throughout the book of Isaiah. God's naming the the fact that as he acts... As he moves, as he initiates, that these qualities are on public display. God isn't shy when he acts for his people. God's not inconspicuous as he achieves his purposes. God's not hiding anything or downplaying anything. His strength, his power, his vengeance is public and visible for all the nations to see. Verse 18 says, according to their deeds... So will he repay wrath to his adversaries and repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment so that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream with the wind of the Lord that the wind of the Lord drives. God sees everything and he's going to act. 
He's not turning a blind eye. He'll repay everyone according to their deeds. The doctrine of God's holy wrath is still here. It's still in the Bible. The scales of justice will not be left lopsided. The adversaries of the Lord and the enemies of the Lord will reap what they've sown. And we see here in these short couple verses how those cosmic scales of justice function as human creatures created by the living God. We can locate ourselves in this text in one of two places. You and I are either in verse 18 or we're in verses 20 and 21. And what I mean by that is that you and I are either in the camp of waiting for this repayment, for being an adversary and an enemy of the living God, or we're redeemed and sealed with his covenant and his attendant promises. Verse 20 reads, And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. For all those in Jacob who turn from transgression, a redeemer is coming. A redeemer is coming. See, Israel or Jacob, when the, when the scriptures are speaking of this, it's speaking about the nation that represents God's chosen people. And the truth is, is that they've incurred an insurmountable debt to God through their idolatry, and they need someone to pay it off for them, right? In the ancient world, if you had a debt that was insurmountable, you would become a slave. Then you needed a redeemer to come pay it off so that you wouldn't be a slave anymore. And that's what God is doing here. This is the Redeemer that's mentioned. The Redeemer coming is the suffering servant that we read about in chapter 53. And God will take it upon himself to hold up his covenant with his people. God's the one acting. And as Ray Orlin put it here in verse 21, we're overhearing, we're overhearing a conversation between God and someone else. Verse 21 says, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth from this time forth or forevermore. This is the covenant that God makes with his repentant people, placing his spirit and giving his words to a certain someone, right? And this is the servant that's referenced throughout Isaiah. This is Jesus. Jesus is the hinge on which all of the covenant blessings of God turn. Jesus is the key to all the promises that God makes. The truly amazing thing in this chapter, as it comes to an end, is, is God's mercy and God's grace Right? God's not in the business of giving up in, on us, but he is in the business of completely transforming us from the inside out. Like nothing makes it into his presence. He will cleanse us. He will purify us. He will cleanse us of the kind of transgressions that we read about in this text. He will completely change us. The anger, the wrath of God is aimed at violence and injustice in his enemies. But his loving kindness is aimed at all of those who in this text are the ones who turn from transgression and turn to him. One scholar says it this way. 
It's not remarkable that God should be incensed at the corruption of his purposes for creation, right? It's not remarkable that God looks down on the creation that he made and is angered at how they're treating each other and all the injustice and violence is going on. That's not a surprise. But what is remarkable is that he should persevere in compassion toward those who have become corrupt. And he does persevere in compassion for all of us who would forsake our way and take the way of the cross instead. As this chapter comes to a close, that's the invitation this morning. That's the invitation this morning. The, the sinfulness, the lies, the violence, the abandoning of the way of God, the, the highways of destruction and desolation... God offers a better way and he offers it to everybody in this room again right now. Jesus, Jesus bled and died so that we get the compassion described in this chapter instead of the wrath that's described in this chapter. And we celebrate that. We celebrate that every week when we take communion. If you believe that, if you put all of your hope in Christ for your salvation, for your life, for obedience in righteousness and godliness, then you're a Christian and we invite you to come forward and take communion. If you're not, we invite you to pray, to consider in your seat what it might look like to believe, what it might look like to place your faith in Jesus. We have prayer ministers that will be over here to my left who would love to pray with you or for you or for anyone in here who would like prayer. The way we take uh, communion at Redeemer is we take a, a piece of the bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have stations down here to my right and my left and then a gluten-free station right in the middle that is single serve. And then we'll also have a station up in the balcony. So if you're placing all your hope and faith in Jesus today, come forward and eat as we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. I'm going to pray and then the servers are going to come up and uh, come when you're ready. So Jesus, we trust you. We look to you. We confess again this morning. It's a delight for us to put our defenses down and own that um, without you we're lost. Without you we're lost. Without you we're lost. So would you come and move again? Would you come and convict, comfort, control our hearts? Give us... Um, your grace to obey you. Command us to do whatever you want and then let us take hold of the grace to obey. Fill us with faith as we come and eat and minister to our souls, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come when you're ready.